I really want to welcome you this morning if you're visiting and really trust that you will feel at home. Uh, trust already that you felt something of God's pleasure as we've worshipped together. And it's my pleasure this morning to continue and to preach the word, which is always a privilege. Absolutely always a privilege. Can you please turn within your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11? We're going to go from verse 32 to uh, the first couple of verses of Hebrews chapter 12. And the title of my message this morning is Such a Great Cloud of Witnesses. Such a Great Cloud of Witnesses. And I want to just put some context to Hebrews. Hebrews is a great chapter of faith, as you probably know. And if you read from the beginning of Hebrews, this amazing thread of faith that is spoken about from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses through the whole chapter until we get to this point where the writer of the Hebrews is trying to conclude and bring a summation and say, I've spoken to you about all of these great people of faith. And now he's bringing a summary so they can get to Hebrews chapter 12. And whenever you see a, a therefore in the Bible, it's an amazing thing when you see a therefore because something wonderful is coming after the therefore. It's like a summary statement. It's like a word that sums up something. It says, in the light of all that I've said to you, I want to say something impactful, all right? And so that's what Hebrews chapter 12 is. It's a great point of a summary and transition. And here in Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to read from verse 32. It says this, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephna, David, Samuel, and the prophets, whom through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. And they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts, in mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, there's the great therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, and every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Doesn't that encourage you? Man! We are part of a continuum. We are part of great, God's great plan. There's 2,000 years of history that has gone before us, and we can read through the Old Testament of all these great heroes of faith who persevered through amazing things. I was just, I was reading that, I was just thinking, yeah, we think we've got it hard, you know, and uh, I, I, none, none of us has been sawn in two. <laughs> none of us has hidden a cave ever. 
And there's this great encouragement from the writer to the Hebrews to persevere in what God has called us to because of what Jesus has done. And we are made perfect in Him. And He has a race for us to run. He has a race for us to enjoy. And He's calling us to endure and persevere in that race. My encouragement to you this morning is not to give up in terms of this journey because there is a great cloud of witnesses that surround us. All those of history that surround us and cheer us on. I went to uh, Italy a couple of years ago and visited the Colosseum and it truly is an amazing uh, stadium. In in its day, it it held 50,000 people. Isn't that amazing that 2,000 years ago there was a stadium that held 50,000 people? (laughs) We think we're so clever and yet... People have been doing amazing things for all of history, right? And there's this, I had this picture of these these people cheering us on as Christians and saying, you can do it. Not because of your own strength, but because of what Jesus has done in you and because you can persevere, you can endure, you can run, you can get through into the calling and inheritance that he has for you. And that's my great encouragement. If that's actually my message this morning (laughs) to you, And last week, we had a look out of Colossians and Ephesians 1 and saw how we fit into this great plan of redemption that God predestined you. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He chose a people for himself. And he saved us by the death of his son on the cross. We have present grace in our lives right now so that we can endure, that we can can walk into the full inheritance that God has for us, and we can live without fear because we know that all our sins have been dealt with on the cross, as as, uh, Hannah said this morning. All our sin, all our sickness has been taken upon Christ on the cross, and we can anticipate that great and final day with joy in our hearts when we come before Jesus because we're going to hear from His heart and His voice, well done, good and faithful servant, and here is your very great reward. Man, that's a liberating thing, that you can live free of fear. That is the gospel. And if you're visiting here this morning, I want to tell you that that is the gospel. That all you have to do is believe in your heart that Jesus saves you and you are instantly saved. And everything that you have ever done that is wrong and displeases Him is washed away and you will never be judged for that again. All you will appear before God in glory for is to receive a reward from Him for faithfully persevering in your life, not giving up, walking by the Holy Spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit to transform you and make you more and more like Jesus. That is an easy thing. Simply just to walk with Him. And all those things I was speaking with. I don't want to pick on you, bud, but it was wonderful. I was just speaking the other day, and it was just a sense of, I can't believe how different I am. I can't believe that I'm not thinking about the same things that I used to think about. When you save, that happens. And all the things that were issues for you, as you just walk with Jesus, they no longer become issues for you. And you were struggling, perhaps you're struggling with your sex sex life, and suddenly it's no longer an issue for you. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is transforming you from one degree of glory to another. You're struggling with your marriage, and now it's no longer an issue because... It's becoming less of an issue because you're just walking with Jesus and He's transforming you from the inside out and you don't have to try all that hard because He's doing it anyway. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that liberating? Isn't that freedom? That's the gospel. I'm telling you that's the gospel. And then into that context comes this local church, into this big context of history. 2,000 years of history 
And we've been alive for, I've been alive for 45 years, and the last 10 years of my life are this brief little speck, dust, nothing, in the light of all eternity, and that, that's the history of this little church. 10 years, in the light of eternity, it's nothing. But I want to say to you that this church has a, a history, and it has a future, which is glorious in Christ. Amen? And many people who have gone before us have, have, have uh, paid a price with their lives to, th- to see this thing become what it is today. And that's a beautiful thing. And I want to celebrate that this morning. Do you remember, well, I remember, the first meeting at our home in Casbury Park. There were four of us. And we just, we had this desire to come and do something. We, we didn't have all the goods and all the gifting. We just, we just heard God. And so we left South Africa with our suitcases and we arrived at the Watford Junction and were met by Mad Redman at the stadium and we were taken at the, at the station and we were taken to his home and, and they, they welcomed us and we started and we said, we're just going to start. We're just going to do something. God had called us. We didn't know the journey. We just knew God had called us and we came. And I remember Victor and Belinda Breeds, who are no longer part of the church, they came and they slept on our floor for months in our spare room. And Vic played bass in the band. What a beautiful thing. <laughs> do you remember the outreaches that we used to do? I remember Diona. And where's Jenny? She was Foster in those days. Uh, she was um, Badham in those days. She's now Foster. And they, we did all these outreaches in the city center. And they were dancing and shouting. and Beautiful. Do you remember the first white van that we bought? Anyone remember the first one? What a day of celebration when we got our little van. And we filled our little van with all goods like PA systems and teacups. And, and we just were so happy to be these nomads with a van. We were travelers. We were on this journey. Do you remember the red van? What a day of rejoicing when we got our big van. And we didn't have to stuff everything into the little white van. We had a big red van. And we bought our first PA system and we, we did a whole lot of stuff outdoors. And do you remember the countless times of setting up and packing down? Any of you remember? <laughs> years and years and years of unpacking and repacking and taking out cups and putting them back and going from school to school. So many schools. Smelly urinals for the men. Oh man, I don't want to go back there. Do you remember the spring fair in Bushy? Do you remember the magician, I forget his name, that large, Pete McCann, he swallowed those balloons. Do you remember that? And we, we painted literally hundreds of children's faces, year after year. And that's where we first met Corley. And through Corley we met Albert and Stefani. Do you remember all those years at Palmetto School when it started, the church actually started to grow? And we first heard God to speak, speak to us about getting our own facility. Do you remember, do you remember Kevin Rickson's play called The Carpenter's Son? That we performed and we, t- we took it to Singapore. Do you remember looking at the first warehouse in King's Langley with such excitement in our hearts and praying and going inside and saying, God, we're trusting you for this building. And we went through the whole building process and the great disappointment of someone else buying it. Do you remember that? It's all part of the journey, isn't it? And I remember... The absolute amazement of the building fund when we started it. People remortgaged their homes and literally gave tens of thousands of pounds to this church. 
remortgaged their homes. People sold holiday homes and gave the profits. It's amazing. People gave little amounts every single month for years. And this little band of brothers, 600,000 pounds they gave. Amazing. What a journey. You remember the, the, the classrooms when we used to get together to pray, and you couldn't get people in. It was stuffed so full of people. Just saying, God, we want to pray. You remember? <laughs> I remember a time of worship at Palmitis when Martin Whelan jumped off the stage, stage diving, and we, were, and we were trying to catch him. Do you remember that time? Not small. Remember that outreach with Malcolm Black when we were doing this outreach and these drunk guys came past and we were playing our music and stuff and they pu- kept pulling the power cable out. And every time we spoke in tongues, they got more and more aggressive. Did any of you remember that? That was a fun time. And that's the testimony of some of you that are sitting here right now. Those are a couple of stories that I've remembered. I mean, there's many, many others. And there are many other good things that God has set aside for us to walk into, into into the future. There are still amazing stories to be told through the life of this church and outreaches to be done and people to be saved and people to see healing in their lives. And so a couple of years ago, we had a re-looked at our vision statement and we said, God, for this, this new thing that you're doing in this church, what, what do you want us to encapsulate our vision with. And we came up with this little statement. There it is there. Rooted in Christ, planted in family, and fruitful in life. Yeah? And I want to just kind of, in a way, relook at that two areas this morning. And I want to start by looking at Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. And this for me is the most powerful summation of what Paul says his ministry is, his apostolic ministry. All right? And uh, from verse 24, it says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am, I am uh, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make known the word of God fully, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose us to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of His glory, of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. That is a summation of Paul's heart. That's what he wants to do. He wants to root every single person in Christ and see them mature and growing up and strong and no longer infants, no longer turned this way and that by this doctrine and that doctrine, but firm in Jesus, growing up to be sons. That's what he wants. That's what we're talking about when we say we want to see people rooted in Christ, to present everyone mature in Christ. That's the lens through which every single aspect of vision must come. Every single thing, every conference, every time we get together to worship, every home group, every time we drink coffee, every time we do anything, it has to come through the lens of this. How is this forming people, forming Christ in people? 
How is this bringing them to maturity? How is this helping them to grow up and become sons, no longer babies? Uh, it's not patronizing when I say that. Do you hear what, what I'm trying to say? And as the gospel of Jesus is taking deep and deeper root into each one of us, what does that mean for you? How does that change you? How does that change me? It must change us if the gospel is coming deeper and deeper into our hearts and our lives. So I want to celebrate the, victory of the, past, the victories of the past, but I also want to celebrate this morning the gospel coming to this church and the gospel coming to your life and to my life. I remember the day that George Hurst was saved. Is George here this morning? I remember the day he was saved eight years ago. Where is he? George, I remember the day he was saved. I remember it was a cold autumn day at Casbury Junior School when we baptized him in a freezing cold green algae pool. We did. I remember that day well because I, I half got in the water and I half stayed out of the water. And he had this pink eye. And he went under the water with pink eye and when he came out of the water, he was healed. Isn't that amazing? In a green algae pool. I remember the, the day that my favorite Greek, Mario, was saved. I remember. He came forward with his hands in the air. And over the years, I've seen his business transformed. And last night, we were all there at Cafe Ness celebrating with Heather her birthday. His life's changed. That's the gospel. I remember when Wayne Trevenor was saved out of the Alpha course. And we were, we were praying together one morning before a meeting and we said, well, is anyone not saved? And he said, oh, I'd like, to be, I'd, I'd like to be saved. He'd been coming to the prayer meeting and he wasn't saved. The gospel. And now he and Joe have been on this amazing journey. I remember Giuseppe and Susanna Miano. Do you remember Giuseppe and Susanna? Italian? I always tease him because he's a little Italian like this and he married this big, blonde, Slovakian girl. Like, typical, isn't it? And they got saved at Palmetto School. And it was amazing. This week I was just up in the office with Cheryl and she was, we were trying to make sure that all our stuff about Watford is no longer on the net. And so she was just making sure, that, taking stuff off the web. And she came upon this testimony written by Susanna Miano in Italy. The song had been translated into Italian and she was just writing into this lady who translated the song said, thank you so much for translating this song. She said, I just want to, I want to thank the people of Forest Town Church, Watford. 2006, our lives were changed forever when Giuseppe got saved. Amazing. Gospel is amazing. I remember when Jason Ursula was saved. And we prayed with, prayed with them after the meeting at Palmer School. And look at their lives. What God has done. I remember when Sid Whitaker, Kellen, Sandy, they all came back to the Lord. I remember it well. I remember Rosie sits here every week. Ed prayed for her for years and years and years and years. And now she's saved. Now she's in the kingdom. Remember, a couple of weeks ago with Richard celebrating his God had changed him. I remember Joe Hall. Remember when she got a flat and the people of this church, they went and tore it 
down, not flat, tore all the wallpaper off, redecorated it, gave money, so she and Michaela could, could, could live independently. Do you remember? I remember all the years of uncomplaining service of the mums of this church who for years and years and years just faithfully served at Bedman with building blocks, expecting nothing back, just giving themselves away for the community and for Jesus. Man, there's a lot to celebrate. I want to celebrate every marriage that we've seen taken from the brink of disaster to fulfillment. I want to celebrate every single healing we've seen. I want to celebrate with Blythe and Joan, who are now expecting their second child. Remember Blythe and Joan? We prayed for years and years and years. Ten years they were childless, and then suddenly she fell pregnant like that. And we celebrate with Jason and Ursula with their story. Our God has been so faithful to them with little Savannah. Man, these are just little highlights. These are sound bites that I can remember. I'm sure you've got many, many, many other stories. And then I want to celebrate the last two years also where God has brought us back to the, the centrality of the gospel above all things and people like Michael Eaton and Artie Kendall and Nick have come into this church and they've helped us and that something of the gospel is being fashioned in us and growing up in us and we're becoming more and more those that hold the gospel at the center of our lives. It's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. Romans 8.28 has become so precious to me. God works all things together for those who are called and to love him with all of their hearts. He, he works all things together. And I think back on the years that Helen and I left our small ch- children at home. And we, we, we had this desire to be a blessing to the body of Christ. And so we traveled literally hundreds of thousands of kilometers year after year. And was all of it good? Probably not. Have our children suffered? Maybe they have. But we did what we knew. And something of... I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that something of who we are now has been fashioned by all of those things. Some of them good, some of them not so good. Some of them, it doesn't matter. God works all things together for those that love him. That brings us personally to a place and to the place of this church right now. Just to see the gospel fully, fully formed in us and fully impacting the church, fully impacting the community, and fully impacting the nation. That's what we want to see. That's how simple it is. That's what it means to be rooted in Christ. So some of those that I've spoken about today, they're no longer part of this church. Some of them have relocated to South Africa, Canada, Italy, Australia. Some have relocated locally. Some are part of other churches in St. Albans. You know what? I celebrate that. I celebrate everything. And there's been a pioneering group of people, and there's been a transient group of people. And whether you've been a pioneer or whether you're recently part of this church, it doesn't matter. We have this wonderful, wonderful testimony of what God has done and what He still wants to do through this church. Amen? I hope you're being encouraged. Rooted in Christ. Secondly, planted in family. Well, I've been thinking a lot about what that means what it means to be planted in family. And one of the first promises that God gave us was a very simple thing out of the Psalms. He just said, I will put the lonely in families. You know, I've thought about that a lot. And the testimony of this church is that many have found a family in this church. And that is a beautiful thing. But I've been thinking recently, you know, it's not just about our needs being met in terms of our relationship. It's something far more deep than that, to be planted in the family. It's about a partnership in the gospel. It's about us working together for something that is much bigger than ourselves and our personal satisfaction of finding friendship. 
it's infinitely more than that. And as God has challenged us in the last couple of years to move away from a leaderly model, we always used to talk about leadership, always used to talk about becoming a leader and aiming at that. I want to say that God's been speaking to me over the last couple of months and saying, not only does that have implications for my life, that I need to lead differently or steward this church differently together with the leadership team, and I include on that team every single person that leads a home group, that facilitates a home group, that's involved in the worship or the children's ministry. We are a team together, and we facilitate the life of this church together. Amen? Not only does that have implications for those of us that are involved in that, it also has implications for you. And this is actually, I want you to get this this morning, and I'm not saying this in an accusing way, but if it means that God is really speaking to us about the priesthood of all believers, for the congregation, that has got some big implications. Ah, certainly the leadership must change, but you know what? The congregation needs to rise into something completely different. Anyone read the book called Animal Farm by George Orwell? Yeah, I studied it at school. It's an amazing book. And at the end of the book, you see the statement, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Anyone remember that? That's actually George Orwell's critique of Karl Marx and uh, communism and the Soviet government. And what he's pointing to is actually, at the time the book was published, it was a profound thought. It was very biting in its time. And perhaps now today with... with uh, the benefit of hindsight and history, we would think, well, that's obvious. Yeah, but at, when it was published, he was saying a profound thing. And you know the story well. What happens is the animals rebel on the farm. They throw off the tyranny of the Joneses, who are the humans. And they say, we're going to rule the farm for ourselves. And they do. They, all the animals start to rule the farm. But what happens over a period of time is that a new ruling class emerges. And the ruling class that emerges are the pigs. And by the end of the book... The pigs are putting up the signs saying, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. It's a profound, profound thing. What is he saying? All is saying, he's saying that actually there's something that goes far deeper than just how we are economically arranged or socially arranged. There's something in human relationships that is infinitely deeper than that, that is wrong and skewed, and that is actually the problem. That's what he's saying. And that's what the gospel says. There's something wrong with the heart of man. I think, too, that for whatever reason, there's a latent suspicion of authority in our society, particularly in our postmodern context. It seems that when people speak of authority, they immediately, in the same sentence, speak of abuse of authority. So if wherever you see authority, it's like you're going to be abused. And, but Christianity, as always, the Bible is full, it's rich, in terms of God's authority in society, God's authority in the home, ultimately authority in the church. And I believe that the members of the congregation are integrally involved in leadership. And I want to, I want to explain what I mean this morning in three areas. And I want to talk about leadership in the context of the congregation. And what do I mean by that? Well, over church history, there's been a huge amount of controversy about how churches need to be organized, what they need to look like, and depending what background you come from, uh, you can have a background of bishops or popes or elders or deacons or whatever. Some say bishops should have the final say. Some say ministers should have the final say. Some say pastors should 
Some say especially gifted leaders should have the final say. Apostles should have the final say. The problem is that when you start looking at the New Testament, there is actually no finite thing around how a church should be organized. That's why it's so complicated, right? You won't find a straightforward manual. You won't find a constitution that is ideal. But on the other hand, the Bible does have something to say about how we should organize ourselves, all right? Now I want to look at it in three areas of discipline and of doctrine. And I want to look at it from a different angle and encourage you that actually your responsibility as the congregation is large. It is. I believe the church should be more congregational in its model. I'm believing that more and more. Matthew 18 verse 15 is one of the most important scriptures around life in the church. Can I ask you to go with me this? Jesus speaking, Matthew 18 verse 15. Are you guys with me? Good. Says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If the church could just get that right, it would be a happy place. If your brother sins against you, you go to him alone and you tell him, Quibus, you have hacked me off. And let me tell you why. If he listens to you, you've won him over. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, two of your mates, that every charge might be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Just to make sure that actually what you're saying is correct and you just haven't, it's not like some kind of personality clash or something. That's a real problem, all right? And if he refuses to listen, tell it to the Deacons, tell it to the pastor, tell it to the church committee, tell it to the bishop, tell it to the apostle, tell it to who? The church. Who has final authority in this example in terms of a court of law? Is it the pastor? It's the church. It's the congregation. They decide. <laughs> It's an amazing thing, don't you think? Like the church sorts out its own pastoral problems. What about Acts chapter 6? You know the story well. The church needs to organize some of its resources, and uh, I'll just read it for you. It says, uh, In those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, the Greeks, arose amongst, against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in, the day, in daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve at tables. Therefore, pick out from amongst you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And we, the apostles, the preachers, we will dedicate ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, man full of faith, Full of the Holy Spirit and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon, Timon. See, there's Timon's mentioned in the Bible. Timon, Pumba isn't there. And Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, and they sent them before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands upon them. What happens? 
The apostles are part of the church. The apostles who had lived with Jesus, who had walked with him, who had been face to face with Jesus for all those years. The apostles are in the church. And in this situation, they step back. They don't organize. And they say, no, you the congregation, you choose for yourself seven men full of the Holy Spirit. And then they pray those men over those men and say, we release you into the ministry that God's called you to do. That's amazing. So, my question is this. Do we as modern day pastors, teachers, apostles, evangelists, whatever those Ephesians 4 gifts are, do we assume too much authority in the local church? I'm asking it as a question. Do we take upon ourselves more authority than we should? Let's look at what Paul has to say as well. I want to say to you this morning that I think in Paul's letters, even over issues of discipline and doctrine, the local church under God holds authority in trust by the congregation. I believe it. And I want to give you some examples. What do I mean? Well, let's have a look. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4. Just to set the context, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4. There's a man who's living in sin, and what is he doing? He's living with his, sleeping with his mother-in-law. That's basically what's happened sleeping with his mother-in-law. And now Paul is writing this, 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 letter, this letter to the Corinthian church. And what does he say to them in verse 4? He says, he writes to the whole congregation. He writes to the whole congregation and he says this, when you are assembled, the whole congregation, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Man, that is incredible. He's not just writing to the elders. He's not just writing to the pastors and saying, you discipline this man who's living in sin. He writes to the whole congregation. He's upset with the whole congregation. Well, what is he saying? He said, you have tolerated this amongst you. Why have you not done anything about it? You, the congregation. That's what he's saying. And then in 2 Corinthians 6, which most theologians would say is the same man being restored to the church, what does Paul write in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 4, uh, chapter 2, verse 6? He says, For such a one, this man, this punishment by the majority is enough. Now, rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So he says to the whole congregation, this man has repented. Now you restore him. You, the congregation, restore him into fellowship. And so it seems to me that in this example of discipline in the, in the local church, the congregation has a great responsibility as well. Great responsibility. And I want us to say to you this morning that if you're going to be planted in this family, which I hope every single one of you wants to be planted in this family, then I want to encourage you that as the gospel takes root in you, as you grow up more and more into maturity in Christ, that the spiritual um, health of this church is your responsibility as a member of this congregation. It is not just leaders' responsibilities or preachers' responsibilities or home group leaders' responsibility. It is your responsibility as a member of this congregation to ensure that this is a healthy body. 
seems to me these examples that there is, you know, I've heard this over and over and over again. There's no church votes in the New Testament. Well, I want to say to you, when I look at this, it seems like there is a vote. It's a, a vote of the majority. That's what we've just read. And I want to say that being part of being rooted in Christ is that we start to grow up in Christ, that we become competent in ourselves, to discipline ourselves, and when problems arise in the local church, we are competent to make a judgment. Now, the Bible says this, don't judge others or you will be judged yourself. But I also believe that the Bible says we are to make spiritual judgments about some things. Some things are just plain wrong. And on plain wrong, you make a judgment. You say, no, that is wrong, according to the Word of God. And then, I want to say this to you around doctrine. I believe Paul holds you, the congregation, and me, the congregation, responsible for what kind of teaching you listen to. Why do I say that? I say that because of Galatians chapter 1. He's writing to the whole church. And we looked at Galatians last year. He's writing to the church and he says to the whole church, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if I... Paul, who originally preached the gospel to you, or an angel from heaven should preach the gospel contrary to what the one that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and we now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be cursed. The implication is clear, absolutely clear. He doesn't write to the preachers, to the pastors. He writes to the whole congregation, and what he's saying is this, that you should be so familiar, every one of us should be so familiar with the true gospel that when we hear a false gospel preached, we should be able to smell it, recognize it, and instantly say, I will not submit to that kind of teaching. Yeah? And I want to say to you, as you get on the internet, and as you listen to other people's messages, make sure what you're listening to is the true gospel. Make sure that you know so intimately the true gospel of Jesus that you can smell and taste when another gospel is being preached that is not the gospel of Jesus. And I want to say to you that we do live in a world where suffering is seen as not the gospel. I want to say to you, suffering is intimately part of the gospel. Those who are called will suffer. If you are looking for a gospel that's going to relieve you of all suffering and make you healthy, happy, and wise, it is not the gospel of the New Testament. It is not. And you know what? Paul just, he says he does, it's not even, I want you to do that. He says you must do that. You must grow up and be able to do that. He says we should even, we should even judge those who call themselves teachers, call themselves apostles. He says you make a judgment but what you see in the fruit of, that people's, uh, of those people's lives. You make a judgment as a congregation. Am I making my point? 2 Timothy 4 says that. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passion. You want to... If you want to get a, a, a preacher somewhere to say what you want to say, you can search the internet, you'll find a preacher. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, congregation, always be, no, this is 2 Timothy actually, always be sober-minded, 
endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. All I'm trying to say to you guys this morning, as part of this church, there's this wonderful responsibility that the congregation, the congregation has to ensure that sound doctrine is being preached in the church. Does that mean that we, are, we have just a complete democracy? No, I don't think so either. I think the congregation is fundamentally and uh, intimately involved. But I also think that in the church, there's a, there's a fundamental recognition that we live in a fallen world, that we are sinful, that we tend to make mistakes. But at the same time, we believe in the, in the, in the inerrancy of God's Word, that God's Word is pure and true. And so ultimately, we serve God before we serve people. Yeah? I had an experience in my life when I, when I was a young man of 25, and I had to go and do national service in South Africa. And I refused. Because my father had always taught me that the Word of God is always above political opinion. The Word of God is that ultimate authority and judge for our lives. And upon the Word of God, I would not go and carry arms in a system that I felt was unjust and oppressing other people. Now, that had some implications for me. So I had to appear before a military court. I had to state my case. It was incredibly stressful. I don't have any problem standing up for what I believe, whether people disagree with me or agree with me, because I, I've had to stand up for some things in my life and say, no, on that I'll disagree, and I will take the consequences. You hear what I'm saying? On these issues, my friend, of the gospel, <laughs> of how we understand discipline, of how we, we, we need to take a stand on these things. So, what do we do then? How do we cooperate together? Because I believe there's this wonderful partnership that God is taking us into and it's becoming clearer. As for those that steward or lead a congregation, those, those that are called into that particular gift, that's what we, what we need to give ourselves to is preaching the word. Yeah? Seeking unity of the spirit with all of our hearts and the bond of peace and together working to hear what is best for the church. As long as our decisions and our understanding are in line with the word of God, that's, that's all we can do. We preach, we pray, we disciple others. What does it mean for you? Well, I want to say this. It means that you become a partner together in this kingdom venture, this faith, this faith venture together. You become a partner. What do I mean by that? Well, there must be an active, an active uh, engagement in the life of, of the local church. Yeah? So that means we attend our times of worship together. When we pray, we get together and we pray. And we are generous in our giving. All those kind of things are good. But I want to say to you, it goes even, for me, I'm just hearing God say it's much, much more deep than that. And I want to say it means something like this. We have a community list. Now, either you can say it's my responsibility or Petri's responsibility or Trevor's or Mike, anyone on the pastoral staff to know who's, who's on that list and to understand when those people are in need and uh, pray for them and visit them and give them a meal if they're out of work. I want to say that is true. It is our responsibility. But I want to say, if you become a partner in the gospel with us, it's your responsibility as a member of this congregation to know who is in this church, to be forging relations with them, to be enjoying them, to be praying for them, to be standing with them when they're in times of trouble, when they're out of work or whatever. It's your responsibility as well. Absolutely your responsibility. I'm not angry, all right? <laughs> I'm just saying, come guys, 
Can we rise into a new level of maturity in Christ? Part of your privilege as a member of the local church to know other believers and to make yourself known to other believers. And it's part of your privilege to enjoy relationship. Yeah? It's part of your privilege to study God's Word. It's part of your privilege to worship together. It's part of your, your, your privilege to pray together. It's part of your privilege to yourself grow in grace. That you are ensuring that in your personal devotional life, you are growing in grace in your own life, not only for yourself, not only for, for, for your wife and your kids, but also for others. That you can help others. That you can stand alongside those that are weak, those that are struggling as part of this church community. So what about leadership then? What about leaders? What does that mean? Well, it's clear from the scripture, Ephesians 4, that God gives gifts to the church, serve the local church. And so there's this balance that's required in every local church between authority and trust. There's no benefit to a local church to have leaders that are not trustworthy. Absolutely. I want to say that straight up. I want to say straight up also, there's no benefit to a local church to have members that are incapable of trusting. It's equally as bad, all right? Hebrews 13.7, uh, I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. I just want to mention it as I close now. It's a, it's a passage that really offends postmodern minds. It, it's deeply offensive to postmodern minds because it says this. It says in verse 17, Obey your leaders, <laughs> submit to your leaders, for they are keeping watch over your soul. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All right? Uh, so the, the challenge to any congregation is this. Have you worked in such a way that has made the job of the pastors of the church a joy and not a burden? That's your challenge. My challenge, as to one who's helping to lead this church, is this. Is my life in a place that... Is bringing joy to you. That's the corollary. That's the upside down part. That's what I, I felt God speak to me at the John Piper conference. The best thing I can do for this church, the best thing Petri can do, the best thing any one of us can do is to be joyful, is to be happy, is to be secure in our marriage, loving our wives, raising our kids with a smile on our face in the midst of great trouble. That's the best thing we can do. That's what it means. You might say to me, well, those words, obey and submit, hey, I find them difficult. They're very strong words. Uh, you know, as a, as a young postmodernist, I, I, I don't trust that. Leaders are there to, to exert illegitimate authority. I want to say, I agree that trust must be earned. I absolutely agree. I understand that over a period of time, we want to see the people that are leading us, how they respond in good times, how they respond in bad times, how they will react to different situations, how they themselves persevere, how they contribute to our well-being. I absolutely agree with you if you would say something like this. Show me that you're competent to lead and I will follow. I absolutely agree. That is a valid and a true statement. But at best, I want to say to you this morning, I believe it's only half true because what the Bible calls us to live in is something that cannot be earned. The Bible calls us to extend a grace gift to our friends our family, and those that lead in churches that ultimately cannot be earned because it's a gift of grace that we give and we say, I will follow you. I wrote this in big, bold letters in my 
notes. Trust must be given as a grace gift, a gift in faith, and trust more of the God that gives the gift than of the leaders that he gives. None of us are perfect. We are all imperfect vessels. We are all broken jars of clay. But I want to say to you, as we go into this new chapter for this, this church, this third chapter, can I make an appeal to you? Whether you've been part of this church from the beginning or whether you are recently joined this church, I want to appeal that you root yourself in Christ. I want to appeal that you fully root yourself in the freedom of his gospel. I want to appeal to you that you live and you walk in the freedom of the gospel in your own life. And I want to appeal to you that you not only walk individually with Christ, but that you walk together with this family that he's planted you in. I also want to ask you that you extend a gift of trust to those that are leading this church. We have not done everything perfectly, but I'm asking you as a grace gift that you extend trust to those that are leading this church. And I want to say I include on that team every single person that serves in the, in the, in the kids' ministry, those that lead home groups, those that facilitate any kind of ministry in this church. Will you extend trust to them as a gift? Will you come with us into the future? Will you seek to honor Jesus? Will you, will you seek to partner with those that are called to steward the church? Will you as partners, partner in prayer. I want to encourage you, Tuesday, I'm so thrilled. Marcel's organized a prayer meeting just to pray for how we can be more effective in ministering to the poor. On Friday, we gather together to pray, just to seek God and hear Him for the future of the church. Will you partner in prayer? Will you partner with us with your time? Will you partner with your talent? Will you, will you say, yeah, I can, I can give that. I'm good at that. I'll give it. I'll partner with you. Will you invest in the future of this church financially? Generously. That's part of our privilege. Uh, all of these things are part of our privilege as members of this body, and it's also part of our responsibility. We can do it together.